Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A Waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. And so this is what they sound like. On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we'll journey into the realm of the most mysterious and rarest of beasts in the United States. Like a ghost, sometimes he's here and sometimes he isn't. We'll talk with a man who documented the first live one in the United States and see how it uprooted the conservation world and how the story rose to prominence in national media. You might recognize his voice when you hear him. We'll do a classic Bear Grease nerd out with Arizona biologist Jim Heffelfinger to understand how this animal makes a living. And we'll meet yet another legendary man of the Southwest. Though he's been gone for over 30 years, you'll hear his voice and receive an impartation from his passion. What we're talking about is Panthera Anka, the eater of us, the Borderlands Jaguar. I doubt you're going to want to miss this one. But before we start, I've got a question for you. Before this intro, would you have known that there are jaguars in the United States? Well, the answer is kind of complicated. You would think like an orangish cat with black spots would be so obvious, but very much not so. Those spots are there for a purpose, to hide them for a couple months until they get big enough. This doesn't sound fair chase to me, Jim. <laughs> they got to give these coos deer and javelinas and jaggerundis a chance. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, 
American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Guys, we've got an exclusive Bear Grease discount code for FHF gear. That's Fish Hunt Fight Gear. I've been using their products for the last year, and I love carrying my gear in a chest rig or my binos in their bino harness. It's easier and more accessible than a backpack, and it doesn't get in the way when I'm riding my mule. For a limited time, you can head over to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease, and listeners to this here podcast get a discount on purchases for your FHF gear system, and you can see how I build my gear system. So go to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease for a special code if you're buying stuff from FHF Gear. Check it out. Fish Hunt Fight, FHF Gear. The topic at hand is a rare thing in modern times. I absolutely love it when the natural world jolts us back to a healthy posture of awe and mystery by revealing something we didn't think was possible. Jaguars are a jungle cat, heavily mythologized by the indigenous people of Central and South America for millennia. The English word jaguar is derived from the Tupi-Guarani language of Amazonia. Their word is jaguaria, and it means eater of us. It's easy to understand why humans have been entranced by these beasts from the very beginning. A giant, yellow, spotted cat with an oversized head, and the mystical rosette pattern of his spotting makes him almost like a ghost. In Mexico, he's known as El Tigre, and the Brazilian layman's term for the jaguar is onza, but in science textbooks, he's known as Panthera onca. The genus Panthera is the order of roaring cats. Yep, I said roaring not purring. That's pretty cool. The tiger, lion, leopard, and jaguar are the only cat species anatomically outfitted to roar. For the record, don't let my perceived enthusiasm for felines be mistaken for having any love in my heart for domestic cats. I only like the big, mean ones that work for a living and put the fear of God in every living thing in the jungle or the desert. I reckon jaguars are celebrated throughout their territory, which ranges from northern Argentina into Brazil, Bolivia, Venezuela, Colombia, and then the cats continue up into Central America, all the way into Mexico. In southern Mexico, jaguars are still very much at home in the dense, tropical-like region. But as you head north, something very interesting begins to happen. The distribution of Panthera onca begins to hug the east and west coasts the further north you go into Mexico. By the time you reach the geopolitical barrier of the U.S. and Mexican border, jaguars are at the very fringe of their range. And I mean fringe. In natural systems, fringe habitat creates interesting populations of animals that are quite different than their kin at the core of the range. They're the outliers who utilize their survival strategies to the fullest point of leverage to make a living. 
You see, these jungle cats don't seem to particularly like living in arid regions, but it's just tolerable enough for some of them. I like to think of these fringe populations as special, almost like the frontiersmen of the species testing the northern boundaries. It's a mystery, but in their travels, they must perceive the nuanced limitations of the land as they head north, and perhaps their own limitations. And the magnetism of the south overrides their wanderlust, and there is a point when they go no further. And that point is just barely inside the boundaries of the United States. And here, these big cats are known as the Borderlands Jaguars. I want to understand these Borderlands Jaguars, their biology, and the overlap of how humans have interacted with the eater of us in the Southwest. But first, we've got to hear a story that became a foundational piece of the Jaguars' modern North American story. It involves none other than our friend, Warner Glenn. I'll give you a head start to understanding the significance of what you're about to hear. Because Mr. Warner kind of plays it off like it's no big deal. But before this, we didn't think they came here anymore. This story took place in extreme southwest New Mexico. That was a completely new experience. Now, I'm going to go back a little bit. My dad and I went to Mexico twice trying to catch a jaguar. I mean, it was a, they're a beautiful cat, and they're very hard to, get, very hard to trail up and catch. Mm-hmm. And uh, dangerous for these Mexican jaguars down here are, are known for killing dogs. Yeah. And, and we never had any luck. So Daddy never got to see a jaguar. Mm. Now, in 1996, Kelly and I were hunting in the Pelencia Mountains right east of us, and we'd split up that morning, and she actually took one dog with her, Maple, and she hit that track. She didn't know what it was. She thought yeah. it was, she, but she knew it was a cat. Right. She knew it was either a lion, a lion that's what we, or a bobcat. That, but the way it was pulling out, she figured it was a lion. So she told me which way it was going, and I cut ahead of it, and and I finally got to where I could hear Maple, and of course my dogs heard it and went to her. And what in, happened? In the track, yeah. I I read in the book the track was very big. Yeah. And you thought it was a big mountain lion, big old tom lion. Yeah. And so that when they all got with her, that thing evidently had heard my dogs and turned around and went back the other way. And it went along. We trailed that from that point on. We trailed that. Well, actually, it was a jump track from then on. Mm-hmm. And we trapped it probably another four miles before they finally baited it. And, of course, I was trying to keep up on the mule. Kelly had gone back to get our client. And I was trying to keep the dogs in hearing. We didn't have tracking collars in uh, on the mule. And when I first, I finally caught up to where I could see them baying off in a, across a big basin with the head of a canyon there on the other side. And I could tell they had it baited on top of this big boulder. It was kind of a small bluff cliff there. Yeah. And, and it looked to me, I could just see it crouched. Or I, it, said it was probably, I was looking a half a mile. Uh-huh. And I couldn't really tell. I thought this big old Tom line. Yeah. So I told Kelly, I said, they've got that thing bade, and I'm going to get over there to it so I can get with those dogs while you're bringing the client. So when I got over there, I tied my mule, and I walked down about 40 yards. It was a really rough, steep mountain there. And I looked around the pinon 
tree there, and I could see that thing right. And then that's the first time I realized it was a jaguar, and it was crouched mm. on top of that. And I, it looked over and saw me about the same time, and that's when I took the first. I ran back up to my mule and got a camera yeah. out of my saddle horn pouch and ran back down there where I was, and I took a picture. I took three of it there, and then and that, that jaguar stood up and looked around, and then he went over this rock out of sight of me, and I thought, that darn that son of a gun's going to jump off of there. And the dogs were all around the base of this cliff, but it was too far for him to jump. It would have been like a 40-foot straight-off wow. jump. So he came back over, so I got pictures of him coming back over the rock, and then he jumped off the uphill side and took off. And the dogs came around and got on his track, so the chase was on. So I ran back and got my mule and went off of the mountain. And I told Kelly what was going on. I mm-hmm. said, Kelly, it's a jaguar. And wow. I said, I've got to get those dogs stopped and, and get before I get something hurt. Well, they baited again off in a big canyon there. And when I caught up is when I, I got I, I tied my mule back. I could hear that thing. It was really bad. It, it was roaring at those dogs. And... I tied my mule back a ways, and then I slipped down their foot with my camera and was trying to get those dogs back, and that thing looked up and saw me, and it wasn't anywhere where it could go. It backed into a crevice there, and boy, here he came. Mm. Right, right, he, he, his eyes locked onto mine, and, he, and here he came. He knew that I was a problem, and mm. how I, I don't know. And, and those dogs met him head on. There was yeah. a million I've got pictures of that meeting and, and then they they all fell off back into that crevice and I went in there and he had one dog by the hind leg and he broke the dog it was maple and I ran in there on top of the shelf and I kicked a bunch of loose gravel and stuff on and it hit that that stuff hit hit the jaguar mm. on the rear end and he whipped around and I ducked back and got the dogs on top and as soon as I got the dogs back then he went ahead and left mm. and I, I tied four of those dogs to the only and Maple was hurt she couldn't go she had a broken leg so Two of the young dogs left with it. And I thought, boy, I didn't know what to do. I just went in and made sure everything. And they came back before I got ready to go try to catch up. They had quit. Mm. I think it ran ran them back. Wow. Also, and I, I was glad. I was glad for it to get out of there. But that was, that was the first one. That was the that was the first documented Jaguar in the, the first picture of a Jaguar in the United States. Yeah, it was the first picture of a live Jaguar. In the wild in the United States. Wow. That's why it got gained a little bit of notoriety or whatever you call it. I don't know. It was just because. And really, at that time, they weren't on the endangered species list, but they were on the proposed endangered list. Okay. And so it wasn't, it, of course, they were protected by yeah. state law and also by federal right. law, but, but it was, they weren't on the endangered species list. But I still I still didn't know for sure whether to make it come out in public yeah. with that picture, because I had some good pictures of that thing. And I, I just didn't know what the reaction would be. So I had a little meeting with some of the ranchers around in the Malpite Borderlands group. And we decided, shoot, it's a neat thing to have that. Yeah, this, is a, this would, is a conservation win. Yeah, we thought it was yeah. a, a neat, and it's not going to come up here and put some rancher out of business. I mean, there, there are just a few of them that come through now yeah. and then. And so I went ahead and, and went public with the pictures. 
The history of Jaguars in the Southwest United States goes back a long ways, like to the Pleistocene kind of long ways, and it's a complex story. At this point, all you need to know is that this was the first live Jaguar documented in the United States, and it started a tidal wave of interest in the Borderland Jaguar. It was essentially like someone showing up with a legitimate photo of Bigfoot. The major news outlets in the country featured the old Cowboys Jaguar story. The eyes of the global conservation world were on Mr. Warner in the series of beautiful photos he took of the Borderlands Jaguar. And it came with a flurry of research to feed America's new fascination. Jim Heffelfinger is the wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona Department of Game and Fish. He's an author and a full research scientist at the University of Arizona. More than that, he's a wealth of information on all things wild. He's been stomping around the jaguar fringe habitat of Arizona and New Mexico for most of his life, and I want to understand jaguar biology. I think Jim can help us. I want to start off with Jim in some deep history, like way deep. The Pleistocene is a term used to describe a time period on Earth. It started roughly 2.5 million years ago and ended about 10,000 years ago, which was just like yesterday. This roughly corresponds with the glaciers of North America retreating, the climate warming, and a bunch of species going extinct and Homo sapiens arriving. It truly was a fantastical period of North American biological history, the likes of which Marvel Studios couldn't rival with a $100 million budget and the world's most creative digital animators. The place was wild. When you see a jaguar today, know that he's got some deep history. Here's Jim. As I understand it, the jaguar used to be... I mean, it was a different species of jaguar that's now extinct, but it was a very large jaguar. Yeah. Like like most things during that time period in what is now North America, they were giant. It's fascinating because I believe it was Panthera Augusta was the was the big like Pleistocene jaguar. Mm-hmm. And then over time it got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as as the big animals it was eaten got smaller. I thought it was interesting that it outcompeted and survived all the big cats except for the, the mountain lion. And right. those are the two big ones that we have left. Sure. We had a North American cheetah. We had a North American lion. We had a North American Smilodon fatalis, the big saber-toothed uh, cat. And everything was wow. bigger. We had 90-pound beavers in the Pleistocene. We had bison that has a very uh, clearly demonstrated reduction in size through time to the to the bison we know from the 1800s. And so a lot of things got smaller. So that was a pretty pretty typical kind of relationship. We had dire wolves, which were giant wolves in the Pleistocene. Why did things get smaller? I, I think it's probably just a change in productivity. When in that glacial environment, you had so much disturbance and you just had a lot of productivity and you've got abundance of prey animals. We had so many different hooved animals in North America, many of them that evolved here and became extinct and, and never never survived to anything else. What we have in North America today is just the remnants of what it used to be, even with the, the big cats. I mean, we have two big cats. The closest relative of the jaguar, as I understand it, is the African leopard. They kind of came from the same place, diverged from each other. And the African leopard is obviously still in Africa, but they're a similar species. And I've read where they can breed. They've bred them in captivity and actually produced fertile offspring, which is kind of wild. 
Right. So the cats are prone to do that. You can you can cross tigers and um, and lions. The the liger of um, Napoleon Dynamite fame is actually a real thing. They can do that in, in captivity. So cats will sometimes cross. But the jaguar is, is from that group of panthera, which is the roaring cats that are vocal mm. and they roar like that. And so you're right. They're related to those old world cats that evolved over there as the jaguar came over here. Talk to me about the roaring cats. Yeah, that's uh, just some class of cats, those big cats cats that they call roaring cats and they they make a vocalization a lot of different vocalizations and the jaguar kind of has an ugh 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 that it'll repeat in increasing frequency and then fade off like that so it's a it's a breeding call is that what it yes. would be right it's mostly a locating breeding call to breed because they're solitary animals and they will get together and and pair up just for the breeding season but that's it. They don't. You don't have male and female groups walking around together, uh, just hunting together. They just get together and breed, yeah. and it's a, about a one-day affair, and then they're separate again. So, how big are jaguars? Yeah, in South America, and in, in uh, what we say is the the real jungle habitat, they're much bigger, more diversity of prey, a lot more bigger items, at a higher density. And so, jaguars down there would be 200, 250 pounds for males, uh, 125 pounds for females as an average. But up in this northern, what we call the borderland jaguars, they're much smaller than than you would find down in Central and, and South America. And they're not a whole lot, actually not a whole lot bigger than, than our mountain lions are here. And so some of the, there's, there's not a lot of figures, of course, because we don't have a huge sample size of jaguar weights from Arizona, New Mexico and the northern Mexico borderlands. But some of the weights that we do have seem to average around 120, 140 for males, 80 pounds to 100 pounds for, for females. And so considerably smaller than Central and South American jaguars. Some indication that some of these at the northern end are a little bit heavier than those in central Mexico. But again, you're dealing with a sample size problem. And if you weigh a a dead jaguar, does it have 40 pounds of, of deer or elk inside its belly? Or has it maybe not eaten for two weeks? That can make a huge difference. I read that Dale Lee recorded his biggest male jaguar to weigh 162 pounds. I think that's the record, too. I just dropped a name that we'll need to know if we want to understand a robust swath of jaguar history. Dale Lee was from Arizona. He was a legendary mountain lion and jaguar hunter in the Southwest. We're going to learn more about Dale in just a bit. But first, I want to ask Jim about some fundamental jaguar biology. Talk to me about jaguar biology. Where do they live? What are they eating? What do they do to make a living? Yeah, so, so Jaguar, the epicenter of Jaguar distribution is is South America. If you look at their map, the, their core area is South America and then Central America. They'll, they'll be in little lower densities going down all the way to Argentina. So they're adapted to this several different tropical forest types down there. But that's that's really the core of where they live. But they're so adaptable, they've been able to adapt northward. And there's a if you look at the distribution, there's this long finger from South America that goes up the east coast of Mexico and goes into South Texas historically. And then there's another long finger that goes up the west coast of, of Mexico into just the southern part of Arizona and New Mexico. And it's really incredible that you've got an animal that is typically kind of a jungle animal that has adapted to some of these more arid forest types all the way up the east and west coast of of Mexico and dipping into um, dipping into Arizona and, and New Mexico and dipping into Texas historically. So their main prey because of that that center of distribution 
is tapirs and uh, peccaries, what we call javelina in the in the southwest, coatis, armadillos, some of those things that you see kind of in a jungle environment. These northern borderland jaguars, of course, are feeding uh, mostly on cows white-tailed deer, the small version of white-tailed deer we have in the southwest. We've got collared peccary that we call javelina that are up here in, in these mountain ranges. So those things probably make up a, a vast majority of their diets for these borderland jaguars. Interestingly, they're eating skunks, they're eating little coatis, they're eating basically anything they can get their hands on. And and I remember hearing that even uh, Warner's Jaguar encounter in 1996 that he mentioned that that smelled like skunk. Describe the morphology of a jaguar. Like what does he look like as compared to a mountain lion? Most people would be sure. pretty familiar with a mountain lion. Proportionally, the jaguar's head is going to be huge. And then proportionally, the tail is going to be shorter actually than a mountain lion. So a, a jaguar tail is going to be not longer than half of the body length of, of the head. If you take the head and the body together and they have those, those, um, the spotting, which they call rosettes, which because they look like a flower. So they're kind of an open broken rosette, but they have black dots on the inside, as opposed to a, a, a leopard would have those uh, open rosettes, but no spots on the inside. And so that, that spotting pattern too is like a fingerprint. And that's why when we get trail cam pictures of a Jaguar and, and, and oftentimes they're setting up trail cam on both sides of where they think a Jaguar might walk through because they want pictures of both sides of the cat to get a recording of that fingerprint of those spots. So those are, well, they'll pick out, they'll look at the side of a Jaguar from a trail cam picture and they'll pick out a couple really unique spots. One particular jaguar had a spot they called the Pinocchio spot because it looked like two eyes and then this long nose coming off it. Mm. So they have some unique spots like that. And then um, whenever there's a photograph of the jaguar, they'll look for some of those unique markings to keep track of individual jaguars just from photographs. A rosette is a circular pattern of black spots. This could be a combination of four to six spots. A jaguar has a black spot in the middle of its rosettes. An African leopard has rosettes too, but not a black spot in the middle of the rosette. It doesn't sound like much difference, but standing side by side, a jaguar and a leopard look different. Google a picture of a jaguar and a leopard and you'll see what I mean. I read that the spotting of a jaguar, specifically with these rosettes, is designed for dappled light, which is just incredible because... Haven't been down there with Warner. The sun is all, it's very rarely overcast down there. There's not a lot of rainfall. And so with direct sunlight and when you have vegetation, what you get is dappled light. And uh, man, I bet they're just invisible out yeah. there. Yeah, you can picture them on a forest floor with all that dappled light on an already kind of mosaic of, of brown uh, leaves. You would think like an orangish cat with black spots would be so obvious, but very much not so. Just like the like you get a fawn deer, those spots are there for a, for a purpose to hide them for a couple months until they get big enough that they can get away from predators. So, Jim, this this doesn't sound fair chase to me, Jim. <laughs> I, I think I'm calling bull on these jaguars, man. They they, they got to give these coos deer and javelinas and jaguarundis a chance. We should make uh, them wear bells when they walk through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was fascinated with that. It amazes me with the greatest possible human technology and reasoning, us using our minds to try to develop camouflage. We really can't replicate the simplicity of nature. When I look at white-tailed deer here by my house in Arkansas where I live, like I'm amazed at 
how they how they just they just disappear and the the color tones are just right and and the mm-hmm. t- color tones vary you know from Arkansas to up in Canada where I hunt you know the deer look just a little bit different it just blows my mind and then when you see something as complex as the the coloring of a predator that makes his living not only by hiding from other stuff that might harm him but hiding from prey you kind of see the full gamut of nature doing its best work i feel like I know there's a burning question in your mind right now. You're saying, Clay, ask Jim about Black Panthers. In episode one of the Bear Grease podcast, we established that the only large black cat documented by science that wouldn't have to swim an ocean to get to the United States would be a melanistic jaguar. So here's what Jim had to say. Gary Newcomb, I hope you're listening. No offense to Aunt Ollie and the residents of Bucksnort, Arkansas, the Black Panther capital of the United States. Okay, I, I've got to bring this up. Melanistic jaguars. <laughs> okay, Jim, I, I'm not sure how much you've much time you've spent in Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, all these places, but you know, there's all this talk of Black Panthers. On previous Bear Grease podcasts, we've established with biologists that there's no that science has never documented a melanistic mountain lion, but everybody and their brother has seen a black one. Jim, <laughs> the only possible wild large cat that could be black that would be within two thousand miles of Arkansas would be a melanistic jaguar. <laughs> you have to increase that distance. It's not two thousand miles. To- Jaguars do have a black face. Even the black jaguars have spots. You can see the spots when the sun hits them right, even on the black face jaguar. But there's never been a black face jaguar sighted north of Chiapas, which is southern, the very southern tip of Mexico, right where it touches Central America. So north mm. of, of right where Mexico runs into Central America, north of that, there has never been a black jaguar um, documented. Wow. It's been confirmed to be a wild jaguar. Now, I have seen, there was a, um, a local sportsman's warehouse that had a pure black mountain lion, full body mount. And I knew the taxidermist that had his plate on there. And I, call, I called the taxidermist right away when I saw that. And I said, what is the deal with this black mountain lion? Because if this is the first melanistic mountain lion I have ever seen documented at all. And he said, no, we just dyed the pelt black just for a conversation <laughs> piece. <laughs> oh, man, he's stoking the fire. Yeah. Stoking the fire. No, I'm absolutely amazed at, uh, at the power of folklore and the power of people's imagination and, I think, desire to believe mm-hmm. people. Well, I worked as a wildlife research technician at uh, at Mississippi State University for about a year and a half, starting up a buck mortality study around the whole state, and spent a lot of time in the Delta with a lot of good, a lot of good folks. And so, I, I'm no stranger to the Black Panther. Yeah, story how many Black Panthers South. did you see down <laughs> yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. Now that that's settled, we can move on to other pertinent jaguar biology questions. How does a jaguar hunt? They're certainly ambush predators, and they do seem to be focused like we're talking around water because for obvious reasons, the prey's coming into water, especially in an arid ecosystem uh, like this. And so they will ambush um, certainly near water, but that's where the camouflage comes uh, into play. 
they're hiding, they're ambushing a single animal. They're not a coursing predator like a wolf that would run and run and run. They're just going to sneak out and, and leap on the animal, and then they're going to deliver a crushing bite, usually on the back of the, the neck. And the more experienced a jaguar is, the, the better it is at, at clipping that and, and incapacitating the, the prey while it holds onto it with those five switch blades it has in each front paw. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith, one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives and the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this spring.
Jim brought up the issue of water. Jaguars are considered the world's most aquatic big cat. Despite feline's reputation for hating water, jaguars are competent swimming and hunting in water. Of note, too, is that jaguars are the most nocturnal of the big cats. They just don't move much in the daytime, making them even more elusive and mysterious to humans. If you want to see some wild video, go search for jaguars hunting caiman, little alligator-like things, in South America. It's some of the wildest nature kill scene stuff you'll ever see. Another interesting thing of note, when inspecting a livestock kill, it is possible to distinguish a jaguar from a mountain lion kill. Jaguar kills typically have the first and second vertebrae of the neck broke, and they eat in a different order than a mountain lion. Jaguars start at the head and show an unusual preference for the tongue, ears, and nose. Mountain lions usually start eating a carcass just behind the rib cage, and they prefer the internal organs. To each his own, I guess. So they have a very big jaw structure that's bigger than a bigger than a mountain lion. That huge head is not fat. That's all muscle, masseter muscle, and that's all those huge muscles that work that jaw and and create that crushing power. There was a, a, an account of a um, veterinarian that had what's called a speculum, a thing that you put in an animal's mouth to hold its mouth open in order to get a tube in there or take a sample. And he had a speculum in a jaguar's mouth that was a half inch steel and the jaguar crushed that half inch steel. So I don't know what the bite strength is, Ooh. but it's pretty amazing when you've got a head full of muscle that big like jaguars. A lot of people would understand what a mountain lion print would look like. How how would a jaguar print be different? Yeah, just to an experienced mountain lion hunter, jaguar print's going to look different right away. And so they're they're larger overall, but that's that's not the only thing. Proportionately, they're different. The jaguar heel pad makes up a greater proportion of the overall print on the ground, and also the toes of a jaguar are, are more roundish and also kind of larger in proportion to the print. Whereas opposed to a mountain lion toes might look a little more almond shaped, a little more oval shaped and jaguar's toe pads be a little bit uh, a little bit rounder. Let's talk about the the range of jaguars. So pre-European settlement, there would have been jaguars in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And I want to talk about how far they naturally would have come up into the United States and kind of what records do we have and and, and how do we know they were here? I, I did read that in the 1850s, jaguars would have been fairly common, quote unquote, common in Texas, and that there were six jaguars killed in Texas in the 1900s. How far north did these jaguars go? Yeah, I, I don't think there were, uh, all the evidence I've seen indicates they weren't common at any time. Even when the first European explorers were coming in, and contacting, okay. you would have you would have a jaguar that was killed, and it was it was often reported in the newspaper as the first one ever in the country. And sometimes it wasn't; it was just they were so far and few and far between that people weren't even aware of of any other jaguars ever being killed in the country. And when one was sighted or one was killed, it was big fanfare, and people made a big deal out of it, which is which is evidence even in the 1850s that there just wasn't um, this wasn't a common animal that was a commonly part of our natural. Fall. But there's evidence in Arizona all the way up to the Grand Canyon, which is the northern uh, part of the state. And we have to clarify, too, we're not talking about Pleistocene distribution where they were all over the country. If we just talk about, say, the 
hundreds or so on when when Europeans were coming in and more importantly when some of the stuff was being documented in writing when we actually start getting records of what kind of things were were killed but we've got records all the way up to uh, actually it was the Hopi Native Americans that killed a jaguar up by the Grand Canyon and records from there south but extremely sparse and almost entirely uh, male in in Arizona we haven't the last female that was killed in Arizona was uh, 1949 there's never been a documented female killed in in New Mexico in our in our written record and when you look at the distribution of jaguars and you see these little fingers coming way up through Mexico on the east and west coast and just touching the US it's a pretty strong indication that we didn't have a, a big robust breeding population of jaguars we had just the 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 fringe where it feathered out as it got across the US border we did have some females that were documented in the U.S. near the border, and, and actually that one by the Grand Canyon. And we did have some records of a few young. And so there were females that probably bred in the U.S., but it would be a stretch to say that we had a breeding population of jaguars. Okay. We had a few that were feathering out into Arizona and New Mexico, and some of those happened to be females, and, and there were some kittens that were yeah. born. Yeah, their, their prime habitat is not this arid open country habitat that you see in Arizona and New Mexico. I mean, they're a jungle right. cat. Yeah, primarily a jungle cat. They've adapted to these uh, these mountain ranges up here. And so they'll live in small, isolated, usually fragmented populations. And, and they're persisting. Some people probably wouldn't want to argue that it's not their habitat because they're living here and they're doing okay. But boy, they're just, they're just, the jaguar distribution is reaching up on its tippy toes and just touching the United States at the at the very southern uh, border. And and that was historically, when you think of, there's reports in the 1850s where people make a complete, scientists make a complete list of the carnivores and they don't list jaguars. And and then when one does show up, it's a, it's a really big deal. And if you look at the Native American cultures in the Southwest, there's really not much jaguar motif. There's not much jaguar symbolism at all. That tells you that if the Native Americans, that's such a powerful animal, and in, in Central America and South America, it figures prominently in all of their culture and all of their stories. And you have right. some of these Native American tribes that have no stories that include the jaguar and really no symbolism that has a jaguar. Once in a while, there, there are a few pictures of spotted cats. And so probably just like today, once in a while, there would be a spotted cat that someone would kill or someone would see. And and that, that was, of course, a big deal to them. And, and they would talk about it. They may make some symbolism. You know, it's kind of surprising to me that the indigenous cultures of that region didn't make a bigger deal about it for the very reason that it was rare. Presumably, they would have encountered them at different times. Yeah. I've got a theory, though. I think that they just said all the guys that saw them were liars. Yeah, and so, they, <laughs> just like we do yeah. today, too, people yeah. say, I saw a jaguar down there. And you go, no, you didn't. You saw a mountain lion. I'm sure there was some some warrior braves around the campfire mocking some guy that said he saw a spotted cat. Yeah, yeah. The absence of jaguar symbolism in the southwest United States is peculiar, but only as it's contrasted with the indigenous people more central to the range of Panthera Anca. In Central America, the Olomec people adopted the jaguar as their principal totem. Totem means a natural item of spiritual significance. They dressed their nobles and warriors in jaguar skins. They made art that depicted half-human, half-jaguar deities. They named temples after jaguars. They believed that jaguars could 
impart hunting prowess to humans when humans dreamed about them. And they had rights involving sacrificing jaguars and humans. There is evidence that they raised captive jaguars just for this purpose. That's some wild stuff right there. But you know what they say. When in jaguar country, do what they do in jaguar country. That's a joke. But the point is that where there are a lot of jaguars, they dominate the culture. And then the tribal cultures of the Southwest U.S., they don't. I think now is an appropriate time to try to understand how humans are interacting with jaguars in modern times. Here's what Jim said. Talk to me about the greatest threats to jaguars today. The jaguars range wide. Um, it doesn't really matter where they are. One of the greatest threats is loss of habitat, especially in the rainforest um, that's that's not new news of rainforest uh, uh, destruction, but also d- other stresses on their habitat and in other places that fragment their habitat, even in the north. But the second really big issue is just retaliatory killings for livestock depredation. You have people living uh, very close to the land, living on the landscape. Their entire bank account is the, that little herd of cattle that they have. And you get a jaguar come in and start killing, and it's just like removing money out of their bank account. And so... They they're they're tr- just trying to make a living. And, and you're talking about Mexico, right? You're talking about Mexico, right? Not yeah. in not in the U.S., but Mexico and Central America and South America. You have these people living with small groups of cattle, and that's their entire income. And when a jaguar comes in and just starts taking all their money away, um, that doesn't go over very well. And it's that retaliatory yeah. killing that is there's a drain on the local population. Now there's a lot of really good conservation groups that are working hard and working with local landowners to increase tolerance and to compensate. But in some of these countries, they, they don't have a lot of money for compensation. They don't have a lot of money for some of these programs. And so it, it's difficult. And that's that's really where the rubber meets the road in conservation these days is, is finding innovative solutions to allow uh, people to coexist with large carnivores that are impacting, natively impacting their, their existence. Here's the bottom line for conservation. The fate of jaguars in the United States is dependent upon the population in Sonora, Mexico, where there are way more jaguars. All our jaguars come from there, and they all return there at some point. There's a lot of good conservation work going on in Mexico for the jaguars. However, a big consideration on the migration pattern is the border wall between the United States and Mexico. Here's the lowdown. Currently, there is about 650 miles of the 2,000-mile-long border that is fenced. Of the 650 fenced miles, 300 of it is just a vehicle barrier, meaning wildlife can pass through it. More math. That means that 350 miles of the border wall has a wall meant to keep out people. This type of wall is definitely difficult for wildlife to cross. However, I saw with my own eyes creek crossings on the border wall while I was down there in Arizona that a bull elk could have walked through. It is a complex issue, no doubt. Do you think we really have a bead on if there's lions here right now? We have all of these mountain ranges completely full of cameras. <laughs> there's a lot of cameras out there, and people have come to understand how jaguars use the landscape and how they move through, and they, and they can most efficiently place some cameras where they can... We I mean, is a, this the agency that's got cameras? I mean, like... like 
Arizona Game and Fish? Well, the agency has some. Uh, the University of Arizona has some. There's a whole bunch of different entities that all have um, cameras out there. And then you have a lot of um, sportsmen out there with with their cameras. So do we think there are Jaguars there here right now? There's one that I know of that has been here a while and last photographed in December of 2020. So that Jaguar may still be there, but the last one I knew about was up to photographed up to December of 2020. So it could be as few as like one Jaguar in the yep. United States. Because of the way the, the cameras are canvassed in all of these mountain ranges along the border and a lot in Sonora and Chihuahua on the southern part of the border, I, I feel pretty confident that if there's a Jaguar walking around these, these mountain ranges, we're going to get some photos of it. Jim, I tell you what, the only way I believe that there's no Jaguars in Arizona if Warner Glenn tells me he went down there hunting and didn't tree one. That's right. I don't, I don't buy into your fancy camera stuff, Jim. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> Warner's better than any camera. But hey, we need to go back further and map out the regulatory history of Jaguars in the United States and Mexico if we want to make sense of all this. Here's the short version. There's been a fair bit of legal jaguar hunting in semi-modern times. Until 1966, jaguars were game animals in Mexico and could be hunted from November 1st through December 31st, and the limit was one per person. In 1967, the season was closed except for depredation purposes by farmers or those with livestock. In 1980, the jaguar was classified as an endangered species, and in 1987, all legal methods of jaguar hunting were banned in Mexico. Here's Arizona's history. In 1919, jags were classified as a fur-bearing animal, meaning it could be hunted. Between 1929 and 1969, they were classified as predators and could be killed by anyone at any time. In 1969, however, they were protected by the state. The last legally killed jaguar was in the Patagonia Mountains of Arizona in 1965. Federally, in 1972, the jaguar was listed on the endangered species list, so it got federal protection. Now for New Mexico's history. Stay with me. The last known jaguar killed here was in 1909, and they were officially protected by the law starting in 1999. There just weren't that many there, so they didn't have much reason to make regulations about them. And what I haven't told you yet is that Mr. Warner actually caught two jaguars. We heard his first story from 1996, but he caught another jaguar in New Mexico in 2006, 10 years later. That's a big deal. I want to hear Mr. Warner's opinion regarding the intersection of conservation and government regulation. He has something to say. We'll go a little further on the Jaguar deal. There's a lot of, after the the 1996 one, about two years later, they put him on the endangered species list. Yeah. So far, they haven't declared critical habitat. I tell you, the Endangered Species Act doesn't bother me. If, if that's okay. Yeah. Critical habitat bothers me mm. because what they do when they declare critical habitat, then they penalize anything else like the hunters or the ranchers or the I see. whatever. It, they stop or the logging guys, they stop that, all that activity just for this one animal. And that's the worst thing they could do for the animal because that makes the people there 
want to shoot shovel and shut up. I, see. I mean, why should they say they got one if they're going to get penalized for having it? If we're looking at a global overview of wildlife management across the planet, a unique part of the North American model of wildlife conservation has been the system's ability to incentivize the average person to value wildlife because they've got stake in its well-being. The stakeholder's personal well-being benefits from the animal's presence. That has been a valuable cog in our model. What Mr. Warner is saying, that by penalizing landowners with overbearing, quote, critical habitat regulation, you de-incentivize people's willingness to cooperate. There's a strong argument by biologists, the experts, that Arizona and New Mexico aren't critical habitat and never were. There simply have never been very many jaguars here. So let's do a little inventory and I'll tell you what we're going to do. We heard Mr. Warner's story of baying a jaguar, and we learned that he actually caught another one in 2006. Jim has given us the lowdown on jaguar biology and their current status, and we've explored the regulatory history of jaguar hunting. I think we've now built a platform that will allow us to go back in time a bit. We couldn't do a podcast on Borderlands Jaguars without talking about Dale Lee. Remember his name? Dale was from Tucson, Arizona, and died at age 79 in 1988. I wanted to learn a thing or two about Dale, so I connected with my friend Brett Vaughn. He's a dry ground lion hunter himself from New Mexico. Here's what Brett had to say about Dale Lee. There was like seven of those brothers, those Lee brothers, and I guess at one time or another, they all hunted. Dale... I mean, he was the one who took it serious, and he was the one who went on and and made a living doing it. And they started out catching lions. They were right there by Warner's, you know. They were on the east side of the Chiricahuas. Shoot, I think they caught their first lion, or what they call tied up their first lion when, when Dale was real young. And, and, it, and they had a brother named Ernest, and Ernest was the one who kind of took care of the business. They started guiding hunters and, and taking hunters and one thing led to another they caught lots lots of lions and lots of bears and uh, then they started going down into mexico and catching jaguars it was a totally different deal the way they hunted down there you know they had canoe or they called them canoes with their flat bottom boats and they had a, a gourd that they and i guess they learned this from the natives down there and it was a gourd and they had a rawhide thong and they would pull that, they would, they'd float down this swampy country and on the rivers and they'd pull that thong through the gourd and it would make a roar or a sound like a jaguar. And these, these uh, jaguars would answer it and that's how they would locate them. And then after they located them, they would, they would go out and uh, from talking to, to several people that had hunted with them, they would go out and keep the dogs on a leash until they got the jaguars started. And then they let the dogs loose. And they had some natives, guys down there, that were just phenomenal endurance athletes. Those guys would more or less go with the dogs. And, and uh, Dale and them, I think, would stay with the hunters. For They quit going, I think, in about 1962 due to regulations. They said the regulations just got too tough for them to go down there. But in that period of time, they'd caught and harvested, I think, over 124 jaguars. And their best year was... Uh, I think they caught 13 or 14 jaguars one year. That was their best year. The Lee brothers were commercial outfitters for jaguars, mountain lions, and bears. 
They hunted jaguars from the 1940s into the early 1960s in Mexico and bears and lions through the 1980s in the United States. I asked Brett about the difference between hunting mountain lions and jaguars. He talked about how jaguars typically don't tree, but will bay on the ground and how they're much more dangerous for the dogs. And then he said this. So I think that is probably one of the main differences. And then the conditions of the area where they hunted. I'm sure it, uh, it was terrible. I, I hunted with a man one time uh, that hunted some jaguar down there. He was an older man, Mr. Fletcher. And I, you know, I was pretty young and I told him, I said, man, I'd love to go down there and hunt jaguars one of these days. And he just looked at me and he said, man, you're not tough enough. (laughs) (laughs) He just straight up told you that. Straight up told me, he said, you're not tough enough. And I I (laughs) probably believe him. (laughs) Why is Dale Lee a name that we still talk about? What was he known for? Just being a houndsman. I mean, being a houndsman and a, and a lion hunter, mainly. I mean, he caught a lot of bears. I, I read somewhere where they caught, he'd caught over a thousand bears and caught over a thousand lions. He just devoted his life to it, you know, and and, and I listened to a, a, a story told about, you know, they had to learn the heart. They just had to learn on their own. They had nobody to teach them. And Dale devoted his life to it. And he was also real instrumental in uh, developing the blue tick breed as lion hounds. Dale Lee hasn't been around to chase lions or jaguars for over 30 years, but we're in for a treat. Brett hooked us up with something really special. We're about to meet Dale Lee. For those of you who did not know Dale, these tapes are in Dale's own voice. For those of you that were fortunate enough to have met Dale, you will recognize his distinctive voice and his unique way of telling these true stories. I can still visualize Dale even now, around the campfire, telling these stories. So please, enjoy these true stories and realize they were told by the greatest lion hunter ever lived, Dale Lee. Well, now, this is about a hunt that took place somewhere around 56, 57. And it was in the swamps of Nayarit, Mexico, and our guests were two Iowa farmers. Now, one of them was a man that was around... 65 years old, and uh, he was tall and slim and wasn't carrying any extra weight. And his partner was a man that was uh, probably around maybe 45, and he was tall and fairly slender, but he was carrying a lot more extra weight than the older man. And so then I was uh, talking to him about the hunt, and I told him, I said, well, now here is the procedures of the hunt and about how we would call at night. And then if we didn't get an answer, we would take our dogs and make a circle. From our main camp, we went down about two hours by boat. Now, we had our men and all in one boat, and then two Mexican boys and our dogs in another one. And these were kind of flat-bottom canoes that I had special made out of a special kind of plywood with uh, plastic glass. Well, we went down and we called that night from about 2 o'clock until daylight and didn't hear anything. So we, the next morning, just as it started breaking day, we took our dogs and started out. Well, within an hour or less time, we hit the tracks of a big male jaguar, and it was a running track. And it went into one of the worst parts of the swamps in that area. 
Well, anyway, when they went down into there, they, they went at least two miles right straight away. And they were going fast. And I was a coming along with one old uh, Mexican fella and myself and these two hunters as fast as I could go. And I had Charlie Settle from Dover, Tennessee, and a, and a Mexican are running the dogs to protect them. Always sent some fleet-footed people with those dogs to keep them from all getting killed and losing them. And I had a little cur had uh, six hounds and a cur dog. And this cur dog was a Springer Spaniel and Shepherd. Real long-haired, and he was a Jaguar dog. But he didn't bark on anything but a jump track. Down a minute, they just went right straight away, and they were running, and this little old cur dog was saying, yip, 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 and I said, boys, they're jumped. Let's go. And that thing run in front of them for at least, I'd say, at least three-quarters of a mile before they, they stopped him. And uh, they treated him then, and he was a good specimen. And we came up and walked right up to the within 20 feet of the foot of the tree and up about, I'd say, 30 feet, 25 to 30, stood this jaguar right broadside. Well, he raised that old gun up, and of course it was just a shaking and a shimmering as it put it up to his shoulders, and he pulled that trigger, and that jaguar just dived out of that tree and hit right in front of Charlie's settle. And old Charlie shot at him and missed him, right? right in front of him. And away the dog and the jaguars went, went, and they did go down into an awful bad place where you was going through that mud up to your waist, and if you wasn't careful, it was a lot deeper. And they, But they didn't go over about 75 yards, and they stopped him. And oh, that jaguar was a-growling, and them dogs was a-hollering and a-bawling and a-screaming. Now the, the noise was something terrible. And now the minute I heard the shot down there, Old Dale seems like a well-put-together man with a mind like a steel trap. He tells a hunting story like he's calling a horse race. This was a very condensed version of this single story. I mainly just wanted us to hear Dale's voice and sample his passion. This man, like Mr. Warner, was a no-doubt lion and jaguar hunting legend. Mr. Warner actually knew Dale Lee. These recordings were put together by Dale's nephew, Mike Atchley, in the 1980s. They're a real treasure, and there are over 15 hours of his recordings. I'll tell you how to get those at the end. In this final recording, Mr. Dale uses a gourd and a piece of leather to make a jaguar call. It's a pretty amazing clip. Now this is supposed to be another jaguar. And that's what they think it is. And they will, not all the time, they will answer, but I've called up lots of them, and I've had other men call them up. And it'll really work, and it helps when you're hunting them, because you can call them up and have a good, fresh track to put your dogs on. And so this is what they sound like. Well, now, this is the way that uh, they go when you're calling them, trying to get them up.
In 2021, there's a massive celebration going on in the hearts of those who love wild places, and it's because the mysterious visitors from the South still roam into the American Southwest. Though the beasts are few in number, like we believe they've always been, the rarity of the Borderlands Jaguar makes it the most unique large mammal on our continent, in my opinion. I'll never see one, and I doubt you will either. But my dreams will be ripe with the possibility of a fantastical encounter when I close my eyes because of the knowledge that they're here. Maybe in the night watches, I'll find myself a jaguar hunter with the Olamec people or Mr. Dale. And like the dream of a jaguar imparting hunting prowess to the sleeper, my hope is that our jaguar dreams would make us stronger as we seek to protect the wild places of North America and fortify the lifeways of the American hunter. Hunting is such a complex thing that can't be understood at a glance. It's nuanced and layered. Part of me longs to be a jaguar hunter, but I know that I would never take one even if I could. I also know they'll never be legally hunted again in the United States, and that is a great thing. As hunters, we value wildlife, and we'll be the first to say we're done. That Mr. Warner let two jaguars go that he bayed is no small thing. He didn't shoot, shovel, and shut up, but rather use the encounter to fuel conservation. This is the template for the modern American hunter. But in the same breath, we can look back and celebrate the life of a great hunter like Dale Lee, who traveled down into Mexico and lived an incredibly adventurous life. The dedication, toughness, both mental and physical, the planning of such a hunt, and the spirit of adventure of men like all the Lee brothers is admirable. And I know that they have character traits in their lives that we do well to adapt into our own. This is the final podcast that we'll have Mr. Warner on, and I hope that you've enjoyed them as much as I have. Mr. Warner and Kelly will be people that I'll never forget. My hope is that these discussions will garner a deeper appreciation in us for wild places and beasts, and that we'll become smarter and wiser and more inspired to help them thrive. My hope also is that we'll find deeper value in the human relationships that we have in our lives, because they are of great value. Long live the beast, the chief of which on this continent is the mighty Borderlands Jaguar, and long Live the great men and women who seek to partake in impartation from the wildness of that sucker's life. Thank you so much for listening to Bear Grease. Please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a buddy about this podcast this week. I've got a couple of housekeeping items. You can buy Mr. Warner's book, Eyes of Fire, at this website www.rootsrundeepaz.com That's rootsrundeepaz.com Secondly, check out my friend Brett Vaughn's YouTube channel called Born 100 Years Too Late. 
Lastly, you can buy the recordings of Mr. Dale Lee's stories, which encompasses at least 15 hours of content. But you'll need to contact Brett through Facebook or Instagram at Born 100 Years Too Late. So check out the book for Mr. Warner and check out Born 100 Years Too Late with old Brett Vaughn. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease.